We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 18. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to John 18. We left off in verse 28. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful and so humbled and encouraged by Ari and Aram and their faithfulness, your strength being expressed uh, through their lives. And pray you continue to strengthen them and bless them and use their churches. And Jesus, we come before you and desire to hear from you this morning, to come face to face with you. So we invite you to work in our lives, to search us, to know us, to speak to us. Give us ears to hear what you would speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ has been arrested and now is on trial, and there's really six phases to his trial. Began with Annas, and then he went to Caiaphas, uh, the high priest. Now from Caiaphas to Pilate, because they had to go to the Romans in order to pursue Christ uh, being crucified, capital punishment. Then from Pilate to Herod, and then Herod back to Pilate. You would think this would take at least days, maybe weeks, but it's all rushed through in a very short period of time. Just in a few hours, Christ goes from one to the next. In the midst of Christ being on trial, we see Jesus as the lamb surrendering himself to slaughter. Tremendous self-control. Many of the gospels document that that he was silent. You know, when you're falsely accused, how hard is it to, to be silent? And Christ is surrendering himself to be the sacrifice for us. What we find in our text before us this morning is Pilate before Jesus. Did you catch that? Pilate's the one who's really on trial, not Jesus. And I would encourage us that we as well are before Christ. Our lives individually are are before Christ. He sees us, he knows us, and ultimately we're accountable to him. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. The Praetorium was the resident of the Roman governor, which is Pilate. So Pilate would live in Jerusalem, or excuse me, he would live in Caesarea, but would come to Jerusalem often, and when he would, he would reside in the Praetorium. So they're bringing Jesus into the Praetorium to face Pilate. Then they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. That's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy talk up in here this morning. Did you catch that? They don't want to be defiled for the Passover feast. The Passover feast is upon them. They believe, as they have wrongly interpreted the scripture, if they step foot into a Gentile home, a Gentile government building, that they're going to be unclean, that they will not be able to go into the temple for the Passover. But what are they doing that really makes them unclean? They're killing the Son of God. Killing the Son of God is okay, but not going into a Gentile's home will cause you to be defiled. Jesus warned and said, hey guys, you're worried about swallowing a gnat, but in turn, you've swallowed a camel. You focus on the outward You focus on being religious, you focus on that, but you don't focus on the inward reality of sin in your own heart. And we need to be careful that just being religious doesn't get us to a place where we're really far from God. Religion will always tend to focus on the exterior and not focus on 
what is taking place inside of our hearts. So they bring Jesus to Pilate, but they're staying outside of the praetorium. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So briefly, who is this man, Pilate? Pilate is the the Roman governor. The Romans have occupation over the nation of Israel. From 26 AD to 37 AD, he is the governor of Israel. We see the ruins of Pilate at Caesarea. If you look it up online or for some reason had the opportunity to go to Israel, there's this impressive Roman ruins in Caesarea that Pilate was able to build. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea, a beautiful, beautiful uh, spot. There's famous aqueducts that Pilate built uh, there in, in Israel to bring water to different regions. The most history we have about Pilate is from Josephus, the Jewish historian, and he wrote that Pilate was very cruel to uh, the nation of Israel. There was a lot of hostility between the nation of Israel and Pilate. And so Pilate is brought into the picture because the Romans had told the nation of Israel in 30 AD, you no longer can practice capital punishment. So in order for Christ to die, in order for them to, to kill Christ, they have to go through the Romans, and that's why Jesus is being brought before uh, Pilate. So he asks the question, what's the accusation that you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. This is not a good answer to the question. What are the accusations against this man? What has this man done wrong? Oh, you can trust us. If he were not an evildoer, we would have not brought him to you. Imagine if our legal system worked this way. Maybe I was on trial for for capital punishment and the judge says, well, what has Eric done? Well, just trust me. He's an evildoer. I wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't an evildoer. This is not an accurate way to bring an accusation against Christ. They never answer the question. Then Pilate said to him, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Pilate's wanting the Jews to deal with this. This is a loaded cannon for Pilate. He knows how popular Jesus is. For sure, he has heard of Christ's ministry. There's no way that you could be living in Israel at this time and not heard of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, you guys judge him according to your law, but they remind Pilate and say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You, you've taken from us this ability to be able to, to practice capital punishment. But there's something deeper going on, and we find it in verse 32, then this, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. God's hand is in all of this. Jesus said that he would be crucified. In John 3, he said, like the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, that Christ would be lifted up, that all who look to Christ as he was lifted up upon the cross would would be saved. If Jesus were stoned to death, he would have had his bones broken. That's the logical thing to take place if you were stoned to death. But we find from the Old Testament that there are two prophecies that Christ's bones would not be broken in his death. In Exodus 12, this is fascinating. When Jesus 
or when God gives the instruction for the Passover lamb, it's that not one bone would be broken of the Passover lamb. So that's kind of an obscure thing when you're thinking about the sacrifice of the lamb. Well, don't break any of the lamb's bones. And then we find in the Psalms as well a prophecy about Christ's bones not being broken. This is Psalms 34, verse 20. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Christ, as he was crucified, what happened? Not one of his bones was broken. They came to break his legs to speed up the death process, but when the Roman soldiers got there, Christ had already died. Why do I bring this up? Why does John bring this up in verse 32? Is it was always in the heart of God that crucifixion would be the means in which Christ would die. The scriptures tell us that Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world. His death was predetermined by the Lord. God said, this is the way that my son is going to die for the sins of of the world. So this is happening just as the way that the Lord intended it. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Jesus says, is this your question? Are you really wondering that I'm the king of the Jews or did someone put you up to this? Did someone tell you that you needed to be asking uh, this question? Jesus is saying, are you truly wanting to know? Are you asking or are you just arguing? That's always something to discern. Is someone really asking with a heart to learn or are they wanting uh, to argue? In verse 35, Pilate answered, I am a Jew your own, am am I a Jew? A question. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So Pilate lips off here a little bit to Jesus saying, am I a Jew? You know, your nation, your people, the chief priest has brought you before me. What have you done? And here's Christ's answer. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Are you the king of the Jews? Christ's answer, my kingdom's not of this world. Christ wasn't here to establish a physical earthly kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom and bring us into heaven and bring us into eternal life. If my kingdom were of this world then my servants would be fighting right at this moment. I believe the nation of Israel wanted Jesus to be a physical king. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans. And that wasn't Christ's agenda. That wasn't his heart. He was solving our sin problem, which is much bigger. And church, sometimes I fear that we want a political, national Jesus. We want a Jesus of this world, We need to be reminded that Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords, and he's not elected by the Democratic Party. We also need to be reminded that Jesus is the King of Kings, and he's the Lord of Lords, and he's not elected by the Republican Party. Jesus is not a member of either party. Jesus is not elected by the Independents, he's not elected by the United Nations. His kingdom is not of this world. 
His kingdom is beyond this world to bring us into eternal life. And sometimes we need to see that and get the picture of that and be reminded of that. God is not national. God is for the nations. See the difference? We don't see God saying, I'm for one country to to prosper. God is saying, I want to see all people of all nations, of all tongues, of all tribes come to know me and have eternal life. And that's important for us. That should resonate inside of us. It's, it's a bigger picture. It's, it's not of this world. And also we get focused on our own world, don't we? I get focused on my, my own life. The washing machine not working. Paying the bills, getting the laundry done, getting the kids through school and getting them ready for the school year. And all of those things are important to the Lord, but those aren't the things that last for all of eternity. Jesus is not the king of this world. He's the king of eternity. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, contrasts Pilate as the physical king and Jesus as the spiritual king. And I really was ministered to by it, so I want to share it with you. One would do anything to receive power, honor, and glory. The other gave up his glory. One valued only what he could touch, taste, and feel. The other lived and taught that we are to not lay up for ourselves riches upon this earth. One ruled by material manipulation, the other lamented. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. One was arrayed in royal robes, the other had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. If we were at the trial of Jesus and we were looking at Pilate, and we were looking at Jesus... Who would we want to be around? Who would we be attracted to? Who would we want to follow? From an earthly perspective, Pilate's got it all. He's got the power. He's got the possessions. Everything from that perspective is in Pilate's favor. Here's Here's Jesus, a Jewish carpenter, who's been rejected, whose own people are turning against him. But Christ is the one that is the eternal king. Verse 37, there, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus says, yes, I am the king. And the reason that I came to this world is to bear witness of the truth. And those that are of me, they're going to hear the truth. They're going to respond to my words, respond to my message, respond to my death and resurrection. And Pilate then responds and said to him, what is truth? What is truth? I wish we knew how Pilate was asking this question. He may have said it as a scoffer. He may have said it as one who was mocking. Well, what is truth? There, there is no such thing as, as truth. There is a possibility that he's asking this question genuinely. What is truth? Here you're bearing witness of truth. What is truth? We do know from Matthew's account that his wife had had a dream about Jesus. And she comes to Pilate and says, look, don't have anything to do with him. I I was warned about him in, in a dream. She told Pilate, in such a public way about this that at least Matthew knew about it and he was able to record it for us. 
So I believe God's working on Pilate. I believe God's working on Pilate's life, Pilate's wife, who was a big part of his life. And here he says, what is truth? And I don't know the attitude in which he asked this question. But I do know that this question has resounded through history and to modern day. Many people are asking, what is truth? Is there truth? Is there absolute truth? Or is there no truth in this world? That everything is subjective. That you get to define your own truth. Now, could that really be true? That there is no truth. That we simply get to define truth. If that were the case, then what's wrong with murder? If there's no right and wrong, what is wrong with murder? Do you want to live in a world where there's no truth and everything is subjective? Because if you follow that to its logical conclusion, then what's wrong with murder? But the opposite is true. Every people group of every society throughout history into modern times believes that murder is wrong. And so it's evidence to the fact that there is truth, that God has wired us with a moral compass, that God has put a conscience inside of us. Now, just because an individual may deny truth doesn't mean that truth is not a reality. For instance, I may not believe the check engine light in my vehicle. Does that mean that it's not true? No. I may not believe the, hey, gas light that comes on in my car. I could take duct tape and put it on my gas light. Say, I don't believe in you, right? I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. You do not exist. But that does not cancel out the reality that I need to to go get gas, This, to me, is the biggest question of our day, is what is truth? And Jesus has declared to us that he is truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, is there an objective, logical way to prove Christ's statement? Does Christ's statement stand that he is truth? Yes, because he said, I'm going to be crucified and rise again three days later. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ sets Christ apart from all else who claim to be God, for all else who claim to be great religious leaders. Jesus alone was able to predict his death and his resurrection. And the empty tomb stands historically. And if you're wondering, can I trust Christ's claim, I would encourage you to really look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Also, the Bible claims to be true. The Bible claims to to be truth. Paul writes and says that the word of God is inspired, that it's breathed by God. For us to learn about God, for how God would want us to live our lives. And you're going to be tested on this. Church, you're going to be tested on whether you believe the Bible. And you might say, well, well, I do believe the Bible. Well, why? Why do you believe that, that the Bible is true? Are you going to believe all of the Bible? Are you going to believe it to Genesis, to Revelation? I got to tell you, the scriptures is not a word document. The scriptures is not a, a document in pages where we get to go in and say, I get to cut and paste. I didn't like this part. This, this part doesn't sound right to me. 
So I'm gonna go ahead and put delete to, to that part of, of the scripture. And I'm gonna put this in here. I like this better. I'm gonna paste, paste this in. Would you ever go to your Bible and just start cutting out portions of your Bible? I mean, let's just go to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't really like that. I don't really know if that's true. Let's just go ahead and cut out Genesis 1.1. God created male and female in his image. That's not really cultural. Genesis 1.27, I'm just going to take that out. You know, I don't don't really like that. We don't get to do that with truth. We've got to either accept all of it or none of it. It really starts to unravel when we don't accept the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The joy of accepting the truth of Scripture is the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus declared to us. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I want to start to just give you some information. Maybe you're saying, I'm not fully convinced that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I don't know that I can trust the Word of God. I believe in the strength of the Scriptures, and I believe you can search it out. There's a lot of great information there for you. I'm going to give you about four minutes of information. Is that okay? And hopefully that will stir on some more to say, I want to go and find more if I'm, I'm wrestling with this. The first reason we can trust the inspiration of Scripture is because of prophecy. The Bible has so many prophecies in it, and it really sets itself apart from other books that claim to be from God. Just in the first coming of Christ, there's over 300 fulfilled prophecies. 300 fulfilled prophecies. These things being written beforehand about Christ's life and then Christ coming and fulfilling them. You won't find that in other books that claim to be from God. So many fulfilled prophecies. I think that's one of the strongest testimonies to the strength of the inspiration of Scripture. The second thing is, is there's tremendous harmony through the Bible. Have you noticed that through these 66 books that are written by 40 authors, approximately 40 different authors, over 1,600 years, there's the harmony of one message. As complex and as deep as the scriptures is, it's overwhelmingly simple of what the message is, and it's Jesus. It's all pointing to Christ. It's all pointing to Jesus coming and dying for our sins and rising again. You know, it's hard to get six people to agree, right? It's hard to get four people to agree. Maybe you guys are trying to figure out where to go to lunch for day. Good luck, right? But there's harmony in the scriptures with all of these different authors. Another point and strength of the scriptures, have you noticed that the Bible gives its characters and heroes and points them out with their strengths and their weaknesses? Other books that claim to be from God don't show the weaknesses of their heroes, of their characters. On Wednesday night, we're going through the Bible, which I love and and enjoy. We're going to finish the book of Genesis on Wednesday, Lord willing. And if you're a little bit discouraged about your family, some of the problems in your family, you need to read the book of Genesis. Because every family, no joke, in the book of Genesis is extremely dysfunctional. So no matter what's going on in your family this morning, I can guarantee your family's looking really good, right? 
I mean, it's mind-blowing, the honesty of the scriptures, and it points to the inspiration of scripture and the validity of scripture. This one is also very deep, and you could spend a lifetime examining it, is the archaeological evidence that points to the historical account of scripture. As we read of these places in scripture, you find it in the archaeological evidence. And that's extremely valuable that we don't see in other religions and other books. And before I move on, I just want to try to touch on this. I think there's a lot of confusion about translations. You know, people go, well, how can you trust the Bible because there's so many translations? And I think what's not understood is there are good original documents that we translate from. That the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, that the New Testament's written in Greek, and we, out of all of the religious books that claim to be from God, Christianity, the Bible, has the best original documents from which to translate from. And I think you should be encouraged by the different translations. Do it sometime. You can go online, it won't even cost you any money. BibleGateway.com, it's for free. Pick out a chapter of the Bible and read it in four different translations and you will find that the message is the same. If someone comes to you and says, well, because the Bible's been translated, man's really made up what it's to say. No, that's a very detailed process where people have given their lives to translate it accurately. So let's look at some different translations and pull it up from them and go, look, wow, John 3 says the same thing in all of these different translations, right? It makes sense that the Bible would be translated into German, correct? It makes sense that the Bible would be translated into Spanish. It it would make sense that we would translate the Bible into modern-day English. Aren't you glad that the only translation of the Bible is not just the old King James with the these and the thous? No joke, I didn't learn how to read until going into fourth grade, and you're like, oh, I can understand Eric now, right? Like, reading's not my strong point. Craigslist I'm okay with, but, you know, so I'm thankful for the New King James Version, right? And when I read the Old King James Version and I look at the New King James Version, I go, yeah, there's no these and thous, but the message is the same. Does that make sense? Does that bring some clarity? But guys, I can't express my heart enough. You're going to be tested on this. You personally are going to be tested on this. Do I believe the Bible? Do I believe the scriptures? Do I believe that that Jesus is God? And I think it's extremely worthwhile. It's extremely factual. But God is looking to raise up a generation, raise up a group of people that says, yes, I believe that Jesus is God. And I believe in the truth of scripture. And I'm committing myself to it. I better keep going or I'm going to be in trouble for the 11 o'clock service. You guys will still be here. No. And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. This is very important because Jesus is without spot or blemish. He's the perfect sacrifice. The Passover lamb was to be without spot or blemish, and Jesus is without spot or blemish. And here Pilate comes out and says, I find no fault in him. Here's Pilate's way of trying to free Christ. Here's his suggestion but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Every year at the Passover feast, 
Pilate would release one of the Jewish men or women who had been arrested. And so here's Pilate's suggestion. How about Jesus, the king of the Jews? And they respond, no, Barabbas, Barabbas. We want Barabbas instead of Christ. Luke's account tells us that Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer. Here, the scriptures tell us he was a robber. What was this like for Barabbas to be in prison, probably waiting for his own execution? Being a rebel against the Roman Empire did not bode well for you. And he hears his name being yelled, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And he's taken out of prison and watches Christ go to the cross. Barabbas is the only one that can physically say Jesus took his place. But spiritually, for all of us, Jesus took our place. In order for God to be just, he has to judge sin. And Jesus went to the cross and he took the judgment for our sins so that we could receive the forgiveness of God. We're in the place of Barabbas. We deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from God, but instead God has given his son to us. So as we close, what is truth? What is truth? Have you come to a place where you have been convinced that Jesus is God, that he died for your sins, that he rose again? Maybe this morning is the beginning of that journey where you're going to start searching things out. Go to a website called gotquestions.org and begin to search out some of the things that we've talked about today. Pick up a great book by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It'll be the best five bucks you've ever spent at Amazon, right? There's evidence for our faith, and maybe today is the day where you're going to start searching out the evidence. But others of you, God's been preparing you for this moment And God has been revealing himself to you. And today's the day where you say, you know what? I need to repent and believe. I need to embrace the truth. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in just a moment as we pray, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ your Savior. I want to give you an opportunity to raise your hand to the Lord. And as Pilate stood before Jesus, all of us stand before Jesus. And you have to make a choice with Jesus to either embrace him through faith and allow him to be your savior where you receive the forgiveness of sin, become the child of God and have eternal life. But if you reject Christ throughout your lifetime, the Bible tells us that we're gonna stand before Christ. And for those that don't know Christ, that haven't trusted him for salvation, then we're eternally separated from God. See, there's a deep need in our lives for Christ. It's not about receiving Christ where it's like, well, does this benefit me or not? Or do I like Jesus? Or is this gonna help my life? And obviously Christ really does enhance our life. He's the only way to abundant life. But there's this deep need in my life for Jesus where I can't save myself and it's only Christ who can save me. So as we pray, if this makes sense to you and you're like, yes, I understand I am a sinner. I want to turn from my sin and believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. I'm going to ask that you'd raise your hand, that you'd raise it to the Lord. I I believe God's preparing your heart. Your heart's beginning to beat fast. He's calling you by name and respond to his invitation. So let's pray together. 
Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you pursue us. We thank you that you are truth. You know each of us, just as Pilate stood before you, we stand before you. And I pray for those that don't know you, that you would knock upon the door of their life, that you would call them by name. In this moment, you would show them their need for you and also show them your tremendous love for them. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, would you please raise your hand and just make eye contact with me and leave it up and I'm gonna lead you in a prayer this morning. So we'll just wait for a few moments. Praise God, I see your hands there in the back. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. See you as well. Praise God, you, you guys in the back as well. Praise the Lord, see you guys here in the front. Awesome. God's good. If you're listening on the live stream, you'd like to receive Christ your Savior, just right where you're at, lift your hand to the Lord. Those of you that have your hand raised, just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I turn from my sin and ask for your forgiveness. Jesus, forgive me. I invite you to take control of my life, to be the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. You can put your hands down. Father, we rejoice. We're so thankful for those that have trusted you for salvation. We thank you for your promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, would you protect them? Would you bless them? Would you grow them in their relationship with you? In Jesus' name, amen.